Thank you for joining us for FYI, the Public Libraries podcast. I'm Kathleen Hughes, Manager of Publications for the Public Library Association. Today we welcome PL Online Assistant Editor Brendan Dowling. Brendan will be talking to Michael Callahan, author of 2015's Searching for Grace Kelly. Michael is also a contributing editor at Vanity Fair and a former deputy editor at Town & Country and Marie Claire. His new book, The Night She Won Miss America, has just been released. The Night She Became Miss America tells the story of Betty Jane Welch, a 19-year-old college student who enters a beauty pageant to appease her social-climbing mother and then, much to her surprise, finds herself in the thick of competition for the title of Miss America in Atlantic City. Along the way, she falls in love with Griffin McAllister, one of the eligible young bachelors enlisted to serve as an escort for the contestants during their week of competition. Filled with glamour, mystery, and scandal, The Night She Became Miss America is sure to be one of 2017's most memorable romances. Michael Callahan, thanks so much for joining us today. Your book was inspired by the true life tale of 1937's Miss America, Betty Cooper. Can you tell us a little about her story? In 1937, you have to understand Miss America was not the Miss America we know it today. Back then, it was basically they rounded up a bunch of random girls and put them on a boardwalk, and one of them won the title. How you got to Atlantic City was a very sort of ad hoc process. Betty Cooper got to Atlantic City because she won a New Jersey title, in, in, in effect, by entering a contest at the last minute on um, at an amusement park in Bertrand Island, which is in northern New Jersey. So she thought the whole thing was sort of a lark, and she went with her parents, and it was a free vacation in Atlantic City, and she never thought she'd win. Back in those days, the pageant assigned you an escort from one of the better families in, in Atlantic City, and Betty's was named Lou Off, the collegian. He was 22 years old, and um, they fell in love during the week, uh, which was also not uncommon back in those days, as you can imagine. And so the day of the pageant, Lou casually mentions to Betty, you know what, by the way, if you win, I'm out because I don't want to be Miss America's boyfriend. And she said, oh, don't worry, I'm never going to win this. And then, of course, she does win. And true to his word, that night he broke it off with her at the Miss America ball. He was sort of a cad and apologized later. But Betty was so distraught that she called him in the middle of the night. And uh, he came, snuck into her hotel and said, do you want me to get you out of this? And she said, yes. And so he snuck her back down the back stairs into his boat and off they went. There was... Predictably, a lot of mayhem and pandemonium when she didn't show up the next day. People thought she had been kidnapped. The real story actually ended very soon after. I mean, her parents sort of fessed up that she didn't want the title, and the pageant, of course, was furious, and they worked out a very chilly detente where Betty agreed to make a few appearances during the year, and uh, and then it was all over. But Betty never spoke about it after her year was up and um, became sort of reclusive. And Miss America's an organization, it's a very odd sorority to be along to, and so every year, all the former title holders who are still living are invited back to Atlantic City, you know, for sort of a reunion during the pageant. And she's never, ever come. And when reporters over the years have tried to knock on her door and ask her about the story, she always says the same thing. There's no Miss America here. So for me, that was a great inspiration for, for a jumping off point, as it were, for the book. The book really provides an insider's eye to the Miss America pageant, from the hostesses who chaperone the contestants to the behind-the-scenes politicking. And how has the Miss America pageant changed since 1950? Today, it's, it has a bunch of elements in it that it didn't have back then. Um, you know, some of them are constants. You still have to parade around in a swimsuit. You still have to have a talent. There's still an interview question, those kind of things. But now you have to have a platform. Um, it's, it's much more rigorous. You have to have a pretty decent GPA 
in order to be selected. Your platform has to be meaty enough so that you know you can go out and talk about it for a year. It's a lot less ceremonial than it used to be, a lot less waving and a little more substantive. Not to say that it's completely substantive. I mean, it's still a beauty pageant at the end of the day. Betty Cooper ended the escort program because the pageant officials thought, mm-mm, and now you're much more heavily supervised. I mean, back in the early part of the 20th century, the girls had a lot of free time, and now you are scheduled down to the minute because it's a much more sort of brand than it was back then. Part of what makes the book come so alive is its dialogue, um, especially the use of 50s era slang like dad blamed, Amici, and uh, beat me daddy, ate to the bar. What kind of research did you do to capture the dialogue of the time? If you read gumshoe novels, actually, from that era, it's enormously helpful, um, which I did a, a bunch of. I mean, sort of those dime store novels. Um, have great crackling dialogue in them that's very sort of book hall and bogey-esque. And, um, and speaking of that, I also watched a fair amount of Turner Classic movies. Any movie, the Turner, the Turner Classic broadcast that had been made between, let's say, 1944 and 1949, I DVR'd and watched um, during an entire eight-month period. So I really was trying to train my ear to how people actually spoke during those days. And it seems that the the book is just so steeped in that era um, and also in terms of the fashion and how the role that that plays in the book, uh, not only in the context of the pageant, but it also seems to be a way for the characters to express their inner feelings. Um, you know, at one point, Betty debates about what kind of message a certain kind of hat will send to someone she's visiting. Can you talk about the research you did for the fashion of the time period? You know, there were several books I consulted. The great thing about the Internet now is that you and Amazon is that you can find sort of anything. And there have been some great books written about fashions by decade. Um, and so I basically bought a, bu- a bunch of books that were about fashions in the 1940s. And the great thing about that as well was that some of them included fashions for men. I certainly, you know, wanted to reflect that as well. I mean, Griffin McAllister, my sort of anti-hero in this book, um, is very dashing, and I wanted to represent that he was dashing and ovaries very well-dressed and polished. And so part of that was reflected in what he was wearing at any given moment. The same is true for Eddie Tate, the reporter who kind of makes the third part of the love triangle between Betty and Griffin. There's a great seminal scene where um, he suddenly, he's he's on the boardwalk and, and Betty's Betty spies him and she doesn't recognize him instantly because he's so differently dressed. He's in shorts and he's in a button-down Oxford that's short-sleeved and he's he's sort of wearing, I think, a Panama hat of some sort. I mean, he's he's dressed for the beach and um, you'd see people differently when they're dressed out of quote quote unquote out of uniform. And I think that was a way for him to be more sexualized to her in a way that he had not been up until that point, more of a man rather than just a reporter, which is how he wanted her to see him. Your last book, Searching for Grace Kelly, took place in 1950s Manhattan, and and this book obviously takes place in uh, 1950 Atlantic City. What is it about the mid-century that captures your imagination as an author? You know, I always say that there was a lot wrong with American culture back in the 40s and 50s, which is true. I mean, if you look at civil rights, if you look at the rights of women, I mean, certainly, you know, there was a lot wrong, but there was also a lot right. And I think that's what I've always gravitated towards. I mean, there was an emphasis on dress and on manners and on civility and on um, decorum. And there was a panache to it. If you look at the clothes of that era, if you look at how people dined, if you look at how they carried themselves on public transit, um, every man wore a hat, you know, women wore hats and gloves and um, there was just a certain elegance to it that I think is missing from contemporary American life. 
And so I'm very wistful for it because um, I love going, getting dressed up and feeling fancy somewhere. And to think that, you know, most people sort of had that, you know, as a matter of course in their everyday lives. I mean, even if you were not well off, you were, you were pulled together. That's been sort of lost, that sort of I don't know, rococo-ness, for lack of a better term, that, that I'm trying to reflect in these books. Have you gotten any feedback f- about your book from the Miss America Association? I reached out to them when I started the book, and I said, look, I'd like to come to your archives, and I'd like to do some research, and they said no, which was not uncommon. It's very suspicious of anybody outside of it who's coming in for any purpose. And some of that's legitimate because they get slammed all the time for being this sort of weird, anachronistic organization, which in some ways they are. I didn't really have a lot of interaction with them through this book. I mean, the research I did, I did you know, around them, so to speak. And I did it at the Atlantic City Historical Museum. There's the Heston Collection at the Atlantic City Public Library, which is a great resource. And then, of course, I had interviewed a bunch of Miss Americas over my career. That's sort of how I pieced it all together. So they have not, to my knowledge, read the book or seen it. Um, I will be interested to hear if I hear from them once it's out. You talked about how you had interviewed a lot of former Miss Americas during your career. Is there anything that connects the the women who have won from the 1950s or earlier to today? They all have one thing in common, which is they have gumption. I mean, they have smock. Um, they're a feisty bunch, and they're a funny bunch. And that's, that's the part I think would surprise most people is how funny some of them are. Um, I think we have this image of them as these sort of like, you know, aquanetted mannequins who sort of rotate around like on a big lazy Susan. Um, but the truth is, is that, you know, they're actually – funny and smart and witty and self-effacing. And um, as I said, it's an, uh, it's an odd sorority to belong into, you know, and they're very protective of each other and of the organization because it gave them a lot, you know, stem to stern. I mean, you have the one or two former Miss Americas who have come away sort of disgruntled. But overall, if you, if you ask anybody who's actually been in that bubble for a year, you know, would you do it again? The answer is invariably, I think, yes. And even though Betty flees from her title. The book seems to be a valentine to the Miss America organization. I always, I have deep affection for the pageant because, you know, I covered my first one in 87. And I think if you actually physically go to one and actually sit there, you really sort of get it. But it's hard to get it unless you go. It's this electric atmosphere. And it's one of the few places other than the political conventions where delegates from all 50 states show up. You know, you have people from Iowa and they have big baskets of potatoes and they're like, you know, waving them in the air. And it's just really funny. And and sort of it's sort of a throwback to a in, more innocent time. And I think there's something lovely about that. I think there's something just charming about it and that, you know, there's no sort of malfeasance or big larger purpose or political bent or, you know, sort of advocacy going on. It's just, a, you know, a fun sort of kooky thing. And I think we could use, and especially in the time we live in now, a few more fun kooky things to bind us all together. And I was uh, wondering, since this is for the Public Library Association, what has your relationship with uh, the public library been? I've gotten great support from the library system, and I I got terrific support for searching for Grace Kelly, and I hope to to have that replicated here. One reason I write women's fiction is because women read. (laughs) You know, I was raised with, with a mother who, you know, never went to college but was a voracious reader, and every night after dinner she sat on our couch and read. And it's a very powerful sort of symbol if you're growing up, you know, because, oh, this is what people do. They sit and read. So I think it's part of the reason I actually became a writer was because of that sort of um, mentorship, for lack of a, a better term. But the library system, you know, these are the people who are curating what we're reading, because obviously you can't stock every book. 
And I have been very gratified that so many librarians have recognized that there is a hunger and an interest in mid-century America and for stories set in this period that sort of reflect this sort of genteel, sort of rose-colored past that some of us are wistful for. I really enjoyed the book, Anna, and thank you for taking the time to talk with us about it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks so much to Brendan and to Michael Callahan. Be sure to check out Michael's new book, The Night She Won Miss America. And be sure to check out all of Brendan's author interviews at www.publiclibrariesonline.org.